This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And as we keep repeating on this program, that gold bug adage, silver follows gold and silver has broken above $20. And... I think you could say that's a breakout. It's really looking strong. Gold is also looking strong. And actually, all metals are looking pretty strong. The great reflation continues. The tech stocks continue to go higher. I'm seeing more comparisons with 1999. The way I describe this market to myself, it seems like narrative has taken over. And what I mean by that is earnings and all what you might consider fundamentals, we might say, don't matter as much. Tesla, I think, is going to finally turn a profit for the first time and is worth, you know, a quarter of a trillion dollars. And so you see almost the dominance of narrative. Now, a few episodes ago, we talked about my Greek tragedian view of the market, which is which is asking yourself, what is the perverse outcome and going with that? And my thesis at the time was that once everybody thought everything was okay, they would all jump in the market and then, then it would fall. And that doesn't seem to be happening yet. So that hasn't turned true, but I still think we are in a situation now where narrative is dominant. And I think, again, this comparison to 1999, we have Pets.com and all these sort of dot-coms, you know, with no real fundamentals. Now, to be fair, Microsoft and Amazon do have fundamentals that are very strong. Apple, you know, so people do want these products. It's, as someone described you can complain about it all day, and then what are you going to do? You're going to go on Facebook and see what people are saying. Then you'll go on Google and do a search to find out, and you'll do it on your Apple phone. And then you'll check into work on Outlook and as it goes. So people do use these products. Anyways, precious metals have broken out. And another question I ask myself as we continue is, at what point does this turn into an inflation? You know, when you get all the industrial metals getting higher. It's not that inflation created high metal prices, but you wonder at what point high metal prices might create inflation. Now, I never studied economics in school, but you know I have done a, a self-taught degree in media economics. And so that is where I'll stop with that. So we have great news. Uh, Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony and his wife Jacqueline are celebrating the arrival of a new baby, Fion Joseph Vaccaro. And so a big congratulations to them. What a great thing to happen in the summer. And in a sense, I thought to myself, in a troubled world, a sign of hope, a baby shows up. So good tidings to them. And, uh, you know, it's a good sign if you're already on a media news podcast and you're zero years old, perhaps a harbinger of things to come. On the program today, we have my feature interview from the Canadian Mining Symposium with I Am Gold CEO and President Gord Stothart. And forgive the picture, my haircut is, I was at the end of my haircut cycle and my hairdresser needs a lot of notice. He needs a good four or five weeks. Shout out to Tobias at Toronto Hair in Berlin, 
And uh, yeah, he needs his notice. And I was right at the end of my haircut cycle. So I'm a little shaggy, but some people like that. So anyways, I think I went the next day. Doesn't really matter, but enjoy the photo. We have part one of the I Am Gold interview with Gord Stothart. And I asked him about actually how you pronounce I am gold. Uh, I was always kind of wondered, was it yam gold or I am gold? It is I am gold. And he actually gave us a really cool little history lesson on the genesis of the name, which goes back, you know, it's just based on a story from eight or 900 years ago in Mali. So a very interesting interview. Gord also talks about his career path, how he ended up as CEO of a big mining company, and what it was like to take the helm as the coronavirus got started. He started on March 1st, so one can only imagine what that was like, and also what it was like to fill in for Steve Letwin, filling his shoes. Uh, Steve Letwin is a well-known personality, and he's quite, uh, you know, he said some pretty dramatic things in his time and speeches. I remember at the Canadian Mining Symposium a couple of years ago, he was turning heads as Mark Bristow was take, about to take the stage. He said some dramatic things, which I won't repeat here. And uh, also he talks, I think maybe most interestingly, about security at his mines in West Africa, Mali and Burkina Faso. Those are definitely hot spots. We had an editorial on that in the last newspaper from Trish Saywell, editor-in-chief. So lots to listen to. I hope you're enjoying your summer. It looks like the weather's pretty nice all over the place. So hope you're getting out. It's a quiet time. People are taking their vacations. Again, great time to have a, have a baby. So... With that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where you can find this podcast as well. And you can also find us wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify. So with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website... We are returning to the Barrack Pergera story because I this story just turned my head. And actually, it was kind of buried at the bottom of an article, and I put this part at the top. Barrick has reduced the power supply to communities near the Porgera mine. Now, if you recall, uh, Barrick is in a joint venture with Zijin Mining, a Chinese state-owned enterprise, and they are in a joint venture, I think 45%, 45%, with the Porgera mine in Papua New Guinea, and a couple of months ago, the prime minister of PNG canceled the mining license. And well, he basically didn't renew the mining license. And so now Barrick is playing hardball. And I think the backdrop we got to think about is the ESG backdrop, the environmental, social and governance, which Barrick, I mean, we had a conference call where they said that is at the top of their agenda. That was how they opened their earnings call about six months ago. You can go back to that episode. Okay, now our headline is Barrick reduces power supply to communities near Porgera Mine. Barrick's playing hardball. Now, is it Barrick's job to support all these people's power supply when their mining license is being denied? Well, Probably not, but you see how fraught, and this is a theme we keep coming back to, is the difficulty of enacting ESG policies, because everybody wants to be ESG friendly. Everybody wants to be, I'm ESG, you're ESG, we're all ESG, 
you know, greenwashing as they call it. And we're more than just a, a website with a nice page. We're actually about doing real changes. But uh, you see how difficult it is. So let's take a look at this. Mining.com staff, Barrett Gold, announced that it will reduce power supply to townships near the Porgera Gold Mine to save costs. The company said in a statement from mine operator Barrick New Guinea that, quote, due to necessary cost reductions, end quote, electricity the mine provides free to nearby communities would only be supplied for 12 hours a day starting on July 17th. In May, Barrick cut its original 2020 production guidance after the dispute began with the government of Papua New Guinea over Pergera. Now, they say it's to reduce costs. I wonder how much costs there are. I think this is playing hardball, right? And I think it's obvious. It seems a little bit disingenuous. Like if you're trying to save costs, well, if that's your main concern, just cancel it altogether, right? Am I wrong? I, so maybe I am. So anyways, they're reducing it by 12 hours a day. And let's not forget the locals were the ones that were sort of responsible for making a lot of the noise. And so this is all sort of seen as Barrick and not Zijin. So one of the unanswered questions in this article for me is where does Zijin sit in all this? Is it their idea? Is this a joint move in a sense? Are they working as a team? Hard to say. The rest of the article basically just talks about the previous history, but I thought this was very significant that they are cutting the power supply by 12 hours a day. Also, just a small detail, the company expects a 15% decline in second quarter gold production due to coronavirus-induced disruptions at an Argentinian mine and the dispute in PNG. And so Barrick's gold production first six months of 2020 was 2.4 million ounces, which is at the midpoint of the company's 4.6 to 5 million ounce guidance for the year. And if you recall... I believe Newmont has a 5 million ounce per year guidance. So it's a pretty interesting metric. Bristow said in a July 16th news release on, on production, comprehensive programs to counter the spread of COVID-19 are all in place at all of Barrick's operations, and it continues to take necessary steps to manage the impact of the pandemic on its business. So no news there. And it looks like all their costs are going up. This is just the final thing I'm going to read here on this. Barrick said second quarter cost of sales per ounce gold is expected to be 4 to 6% higher. Total cash costs per ounce gold are expected to be 2 to 4% higher. And all-in sustaining costs per ounce gold are expected to be 7 to 9% higher than the first quarter of 2020. So all this coronavirus preparations, you might say the retrofitting of the operations to help prevent the spread of the coronavirus are raising costs. So it'll be interesting to see if those higher costs stay or if they're able to lower them. It also seems like an opportunity for them. It seems like a good excuse, a good place to hide. This coronavirus is costing us a lot of money, so earnings aren't going to be as good. But who knows? Moving on, we have this interesting battle uh, for cardinal resources, both Norgold, which is out of Russia, and Shandong, which is Chinese, are fighting over Ghana-focused cardinal resources. And as we keep mentioning, since I began on this podcast about a year ago, yeah, so here we go. China is trying to buy another mine. 
So let's take a closer look. Russian miner Norgold is offering to buy all shares in Ghana-focused Cardinal Resources it does not already own, valuing the Australian-listed company's equity at $243 million U.S., Norgold, whose non-executive chairman is billionaire Alexei Mordashov, is Cardinal's largest shareholder with a voting power of almost 19%. So you see Norgold is already a big player in Cardinal Resources. The Moscow-based company had attempted to buy the Australian gold producer for about 46 cents per share in March. Its new bid of 66 cents per share, 50% higher, almost, represents an 11.9% premium to its last close, as well as a 10% premium on a U.S. $221 million offer put forward by China's Shandong Gold Mining in June. Cardinal has recommended shareholders accept Shandong's proposal, noting it represented a 31.1% premium to Norgold's preliminary bid. Now, we kind of saw this happen with the Aurora Mine as well, where a Chinese company had bid on it, I believe it was Silver Corp, and then Grand Columbia came in and made a counter offer that was better, but still Guiana Goldfields wanted to keep going with the original offer, even though it was lower. And then finally, I think it was Zijin came in, and Silver Corp is kind of based in China. They have a weird, not exactly sure, they're not state-owned, but they are affiliated. And then Zijin came in and bought it all out. They were the secret international miner. And so China still got it in the end. And But it wasn't a, it was a similar situation where a higher offer had come in, but the company still felt committed to the original Chinese offer. So not sure what's going on there. Let's dig a little deeper. Cardinal said that it would consider Norgold's new offer but noted it had obligations under the bid implementation agreement inked with Shandong Gold last month. Now, it would be interesting to know what those obligations were. It also pointed out that Norgold's bid had been unsolicited, urging its shareholders not to take any action until a recommendation can be made. Cardinal holds an interest in a number of tenements within Ghana, and you see this battle over Africa, and is focused on the development of its Namdini project, which has 5.1 million ounces of gold in reserves. So a very interesting situation over there. You have China versus a Russian billionaire who already had a 19% stake in the company. So very, very interesting. Sticking with the Chinese theme, Shangji Copper sells its shares in First Quantum. Now this is from Northern Miner staff. And this is also just a bit of a head-turning story. It's like everything with the China story, like I'm not trying to pick on China here, but there's just all these weird stories coming out from there. Zhangji Copper sold 1.2 million shares in First Quantum Minerals. Last week, according to SETI filings, BMO reports, the Chinese company bought its equity stake in the miner in December 2019, so about seven or eight months ago. BMO analyst Jackie Przybylowski said the move did not come as a surprise. We have seen the relationship between First Quantum and Zhangji strained since late last year, the analyst said in a research note to clients. On the Q1 2020 earnings call, Tristan Pascal, Group Director Strategy, referred to Zhangji as a, quote, donkey in context of negotiations between the two groups, which suggested to us that the relationship had not improved. A very 
tenuous relationship between First Quantum and Zhang Zhi Copper. The mining analysts noted that First Quantum's partnership with Zhang Zhi, quote, was initially intended to fund an expansion at Kensanshi while continuing to allocate operation cash flows towards debt repayment. However, the actual necessity of a smelter expansion and the timing of when this would be required is unclear. Management had promised to put out a technical report on the smelter expansion in March, but that had been delayed until tentatively sometime later this year. Prisbolowski said one consequence of Zhang Zhi's move is a, quote, lower probability that first quantum is taken out, end quote. And with Zhang Zhi no longer involved, the takeout premium that can sometimes boost the first quantum share price should be lowered. Maybe. I'm not sure that's the reason, but Prisbolowski has much more expertise than I do on this. Nevertheless, she is maintaining her outperformer rating on the company and her one-year price target of $12.50 per share. At press time in Toronto, First Quantum shares were trading at $13.18, within a 52-week range of $4.72 and $14.12. So, you can read more about that on northernmeyer.com. That is our headline. Zhangji Copper sells shares in First Quantum. Moving on, more. Strife, Cornerstone Capital seeks to replace Saul Gold's board over mismanagement and transparency. Now, Saul Gold, if you recall, tried to buy out Cornerstone Capital because they had, I believe, a 19% stake in the company's Cascabel Copper Gold Project in Ecuador. And I believe Cornerstone Capital rejected that. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi at mining.com. And now, so Cornerstone Capital rejected the takeover bid, and now they have plans to call a meeting of Saul Gold shareholders to replace the company's entire board. The move by Ontario-based Junior comes after it rejected the Ecuador-focused mining company's second takeover approach on July 14th. And we have a quote from Greg Shimandi, chairman of Cornerstone. He's pretty brutal. Quote, the current Saul Gold board is incapable of managing the affairs of Saul Gold for the benefit of all shareholders in a prudent and transparent manner. And as the report here says, as Cecilia says, Saul Gold has attracted big miners, including BHP, into this project. And it's seen as a very large, ambitious project. Yeah, and Cornerstone owns 15% of the Alpella Copper Gold Project, which is part of Saul Gold's cascable asset. Now, there is also a little bit of controversy over... Saul Gold signing a streaming agreement with Franco Nevada for $150 million. So Franco Nevada gets a stream on El Pala. And the move defied the wishes of Newcrest Mining, so another big mining company, Australian, one of the company's top investors, which had urged Saul Gold to raise funds via equity. Cornerstone didn't like the decision either. Quote, the proposed Franco-Nevada royalty financing will significantly destroy shareholder value for all Saul Gold shareholders, Chimandi said in his July 15th statement. I can understand why people, if you have a great project, are you rushing out to sign a royalty streaming agreement? I'm not sure if that's such a great idea. Let's hear from Saul Gold CEO Nick Mather, and he has repeatedly said his team is building a company, quote, as important to the development of Ecuador as BHP was to Australia. So that is quite the claim. And yeah, so BHP upped its stake last year to 15%, and they're 
Saul Gold's top shareholder. So strife over in Ecuador between Cornerstone Capital and Saul Gold, the board is feeling the pressure. And finally, I am going to take a look at a story on silver to lead us into metal prices. RBC has hiked its silver price forecasts. And I always find these stories a little strange because, you know, you have silver above $20 an ounce. And now RBC Capital Markets, that probably didn't predict, you know, silver above $20 an ounce in 2020. They're raising their price forecast by 16% in 2020, 17% in 2021, and 14% in 2022. So here are your forecasts. RBC now forecasts silver prices will average, and that's the key word here, average, $17.76 per ounce this year, $18.75 per ounce next year, and $18.50 per ounce in 2021. I guess they think that silver is quite high and will eventually come down. It seems like they're quite low, these forecasts. But I keep saying these, you know, they're the experts here, but I just find these forecasts quite bizarre. Anyways, let's take a closer look. The bank credited its higher price forecast to, quote, a more robust rebound in global industrial production and ongoing strong investment demand, end quote. RBC is also forecasting physical deficits for the precious metal this year and next year compared to, quote, modest surpluses previously. And we've been hearing about that. Mexico with the coronavirus has had all sorts of production issues. Uh, quote, we now forecast demand in 2020 down 4% versus 17% previously. And they also said that they have incorporated a material ETF inventory build, resulting in even larger net deficits. And we have another quote. While we continue to assume year-on-year declines in global GDP and industrial production, we now think there could be a better outcome than previously expected, reflecting recent strengths across industrial sectors in China, support of global central bank stimulus, and apparent rebounds in global PMIs. As such, our forecasts for industrial and commercial demand have improved. Scrolling down, final paragraph, but clearly COVID-19 has had the biggest impact on supply, and RBC notes that disruptions from the pandemic quote, have had an outsized impact on silver versus gold on a global basis, given the geographic spread of primary silver production being in the Americas, where more restrictive lockdowns were implemented relative to other jurisdictions. So your takeaway, RBC has raised their silver forecast to $17.76 per ounce this year. So stop the presses. And with that, let's take a look at metal prices. just looking at CNBC here. Silver up 6%. Uh, turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at Infomine.com once again for providing us with these prices each and every week. If you ever want to find them for yourself, type Infomine and metal prices into Google, and it will be your first result. And on July 21st, gold is at $1,839.66. That is $40 higher than last week's quote. Silver has broken $21, is at $21.03. That is $0.99 cents higher than last week's quote. 
Platinum is at $874.52 per ounce. That is $37 higher than last week. And Palladium is at $2,155.92. That is $166 higher than last week's quote. And on July 17th, copper is at $2.93, six cents higher than last week. Aluminum is a penny lower at 73 cents per pound. Lead is two cents lower at 82 cents per pound. Nickel breaks $6 at $6.02. That is nine cents higher than last week. Tin keeps climbing higher. It is at $7.89. That is 14 cents higher than last week's quote. Cobalt is unchanged at $12.93, and zinc keeps climbing higher to $0.99 per pound. That is $0.02 higher. The great reflation is in full gear, folks. It seems to be actually increasing in momentum, and silver is definitely your standout, but look at gold, look at everything. Look at copper, $2.93. Lots to think about. Nickel, above $6. This is... The Great Reflation, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Gord Stothart, President and Chief Executive Officer of I Am Gold, and he was interviewed by your host at the Canadian Mining Symposium on June 16th on Zoom. And in this discussion, we talk about the name of I Am Gold and the history of the name, as well as Gord Stothart's interesting career path, how he dealt with the coronavirus after becoming CEO on March 1st, and also how the company is dealing with security in West Africa. I hope you enjoy the interview. This is part one of two, and I will see you on the other side. Really special treat for you here. We have Gord Stothart from I Am Gold. He's the president and CEO. And Gord joined I Am Gold in 2007 as the COO. And on March 1st, he became CEO and president. So amazing timing. I'll have to ask him how that went as far as that's all concerned. And Gord has also worked for Naranda, Falconbridge, and Extrata for 21 years. And he went to the University of British Columbia, and he did a double major in mining and mineral processing. So that's the shorthand version of Gord Stothart. Gord, are you there? I am. How are you doing? Hey, very good. Good to meet you online. You as well. I have a bit of a, it's a bit of a semi-obnoxious question, but it's a genuine one. <laughs> and I'm wondering, how do you pronounce I am gold? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Just like you said it, it's got a, okay. it's got a great story behind it. And uh, if I had a, a half hour, I'd give you the whole story, but uh, it's got a bit of history behind it. So it's, it's quite interesting. Could you tell me a short version of the story? Yeah, that was actually I mean, my, my second question. <laughs> well, it actually goes back, um, the, the company was founded as a junior company on the Sadiola deposit in Mali. And the founders at the time, there was one geologist and a couple of lawyers and business people. And at the time, they named the company International African Minerals Gold, with the always having the goal of calling it I Am Gold, but thought it was a bit too cheeky. Uh, the story of I Am Gold comes from the days of Mansa Musa, who was the king of gold in Mali about eight, nine hundred years ago. And the, the legend goes that he, he traveled to Europe 
and gifted so much gold to the Pharaoh that he destroyed the price of gold for, for a generation. But when asked who he was, when he presented himself, he said, I am gold. So the, the founders at the time thought that was a pretty unique name for a, for a mining company. And it obviously rather self-explanatory. I love it. I love how you go into the history of, of Mali in 800, 900 years ago. And that's actually quite fascinating. Uh, so, so tell me about yourself. So you went to UBC, just a little bit about you. Uh, you studied mining and mineral processing. Tell me, was it your long-term goal to become a, you know, a top executive at a mining company or, or did that sort of, did that happen along the way and you sort of <laughs> fell into it or, or a little bit of both? I, you know, I think it, it, it's, it sort of happened along the way when I first got into mining I was raised on a farm in the Okanagan Valley of BC, which is a wonderful place. I didn't want to become a farmer. I went to school, became an engineer, and, and, and when I looked at the engineering disciplines, I wasn't sure that I actually wanted to end up working in a city because of my, you know, just my, my background at that point in time. And the other thing I liked really about mining, mineral processing, the whole business was just the variety involved compared to a lot of the other engineering disciplines, which are pretty narrow. I loved the fact it was a good mix of business and engineering, more than just pure engineering. And it appealed to me. So I, I just sort of started down the path. I, um, right out of university, started working for Naranda at a small open pit in northern BC. And then as I moved around and really started to know the business and, and really started to appreciate the intricacies of the business. I enjoyed it a lot. Moved from Northern BC to New Brunswick, work underground at a, a large underground base metals mine for Naranda there for a while. Then I did a stint with business development in Toronto and, and then went down to South America, did some project development. I had the fortune to participate in the uh, design and construction and startup at Antamina, which is an incredible operation, obviously, in, in Peru. And family moved down there and, and we had a lot of fun. and. Lived in Peru for four years and then lived in Chile for five and a half years. And just sort of increasing levels of responsibility. I, I used to get bored fairly easily and, and uh, it was nice to go from one challenge to the next. And as was said earlier, I joined I Am Gold right at the end of 2007 as COO and have loved my time and haven't, haven't managed to get bored here at all. Uh, and then March 1st, a real, a really interesting time to take over. Bap yeah. Baptism by oh. fire, trial by fire there. Yeah, yes and no. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, so tell me about that. I mean, you're, you're filling Steve Letwin's shoes, correct? And I, I actually correct. met Steve Letwin, I think about a year ago, we interviewed him for uh, Northern Minor Leaders, TNM Leaders. And I was just filling in for Trish, who had to go interview uh, Mark Bristow from Barrick at the Canadian Mining Symposium. It was yeah. by a year ago. And uh, I was really impressed at how he's a very well-read, interesting guy, uh, Steve Latwin. So anyway, has it been hard to fill his shoes? Because he's got such a personality, right? He has a great personality. He's a great guy, uh, extremely generous boss, extremely involved in a lot of the issues outside of just the business issues. And, I, you know, we were able to work together for almost nine years plus. I spent a lot of time sort of watching him. We, we both have our own quirks and uh, ways of working. And, you know, I, I, I think a little bit of his style, I certainly have learned from, from observing what he does. I think he, he did some things really well. You know, one thing, because I've advanced from within the company, I'm awfully familiar with the people and the teams and the assets and everything else. So moving into the role and assuming the CEO leadership uh, has been relatively 
straightforward for me. The team is very, very strong. That was one thing that Steve absolutely insisted on and did, a, I think, a great job of is putting really, really strong team in place. And it was a very participative way to run the business. And by my nature, that's how I've always worked. So it suited me. And, and because the team was built in that style, it's been quite easy for me to step into that. Yeah, I would suppose being COO for 13 years previous, probably you're so close to what was going on and it's, it's chief operating's officer. Yeah, I, I, I would think you'd be fairly well prepared for all yeah. that. Yeah, so now as CEO and president, how would you rate your performance on the coronavirus? I mean, you start and basically right as the world is shutting down. I mean, I canceled my trip to Toronto to go to the to PDAC on February 26th, I think, and you start March 1st. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that. And, and now looking back, uh, you know, are there things you'd do different? But tell us your experience. Uh, maybe it wasn't that strange. I don't know. Well, it, it, was, it was different. It was very, very different. Like you say, I, I you know, I assumed the mantle March 1st, but really sort of since the middle of January, I had been, since it was officially announced, uh, I had sort of been uh, out on the road and, and spending a lot of time on the marketing side of things. Steve had always been pretty good about uh, getting getting myself and our CFO and others in the leadership team out on the trail marketing. So it w wasn't something we were unfamiliar with, but between the announcement and, and actually assuming the role, it was an opportunity for us to sort of get out, talk to a lot of the, the major shareholders, understand what their thinking was, where the market was headed, things of that nature. I mean, in retrospect, it's kind of interesting because I, I don't think any one of them told me that uh, what was going to actually happen, <laughs> happen was going to happen. But it's been, as you say, a bit odd. I mean, um, 10 days or 11 days after I assumed the role, I was in self-quarantine and I've you know basically been stuck at my house uh, ever since working out of a my son's old bedroom here. It's been interesting. You know, I think, again, because of the quality of the team we had, we were able to move pretty quickly when the situation really started to pop up, at least in a Canadian context in, in, in early mid-March. And for better or worse, we had one of the very early cases in our head office in Toronto, mm -hmm. which prompted us to shut down and, and sort of go into work from home mode pretty early on. Do you remember what date that was? Uh, I want to say as of the 11th or 12th, our, our sure. office was shut yeah, down. Yeah, right before the NBA sort of shut down. And so that's pretty yeah. early. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a, you know, crisis response system in place as, as, as most, most companies do. But we formed that committee very early on. We formed crisis response committees at each of the operations, each of the expiration sites very early on. And just because of the scope of the issue, uh, we put together an ad hoc committee, which we call the uh, Operations COVID Crisis Committee or OCC, to really act as a liaison between the sites and the corporate and, and, and take on a lot of the coordinating roles between the sites and making sure uh, that people had what they needed, that we had somebody keeping their finger on supply chain. You know, that was obviously identified as a big risk early on. Making sure that our medical response at the sites was appropriate and coordinated and, and following up on a lot of issues. It was pretty dynamic, certainly for the first three, four weeks. Sort of all of those committees were meeting every day and there was a lot of information flow back and forth. As things, quote unquote, stabilized, uh, we've been able to back off on the cadence a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. We put you know, the structures in place and it's been going pretty well. It's, it's, it's intriguing. We started uh, 
from the very first week, a weekly report to our to our board members, uh, boards of, board of directors, so that they're informed of what's what's happening within the company. You know, as a grade, I would have certainly, I, I think I would certainly give our company a B. Uh, I don't think we dropped any major balls uh, along the way. Uh, you know, it would have been nice to have a crystal ball and see which way things were going to go. But overall, I think things have gone off pretty well, and uh, we've been able to really take it in stride, look for some advantages. Uh, you know, I, certainly the way some of the exchange weight rates went, the way the, the dollar went, we were certainly tracking that in the midst of all that going on. Right. You had that extreme move yeah. higher. Right? Yeah. And I, mean, I guess that affects you. I guess, is that positive or negative for you? I mean, you're paying people like you have mines all over the place. I guess it depends where and which currencies, but yeah, uh, I, I assume that's an advantageous. Uh, am I wrong? It, it was definitely advantageous for us. So, you know, we're trying to find a little bit of a, of a, a little bit of a rose in the snow there, if you will, uh, to understand where we could take advantage. I mean, we, we typically operate fiscally from uh, sort of a very uh, conservative standpoint. So we have, uh, an ongoing program of hedging a lot of our inputs. So we did have currency mm -hmm. hedges and, and fuel price hedges in place. So we couldn't absolutely take full advantage of it, but we did have some unhedged capacity that was available to us. And we certainly jumped on that pretty quickly. So you have four producing mines in several countries, yes. correct? Yes. You have Canada, you have a few operations and development things, but there's one main producing mine. Is that correct? Westwood you, mine in, in Rouen, Miranda. Yep. Yeah. The Westwood. And then in Suriname, you have the Rosabel mine. Correct. And then you have a mine in Mali just, yes. and then, and one in Burkina Faso. Correct. Yeah. Which are very hot spots as far as uh, the, I guess, security concerns. Uh, there's been some pretty incredible stories that have come out of there and tragic stories. So I guess I have uh, a couple of questions. First, uh, just to finish up on the coronavirus. So as far as the mine sites themselves, like it's interesting you had it at the office. Uh, just quickly, did you have any at the mine sites? And have you implemented kind of a, I guess for lack of a better term, a global strategy on how to deal with this? Or do you do country by country, just briefly? Uh, it's, it's more of a global strategy. Um, so for the overseas operations, our camp-based operations, we put them into what we call island mode, really removing all non-production staff as possible from site, uh, getting people to work from home where that was possible, removing a lot of our contract and certainly consulting staff and really sort of strip it down to the bare staff. At both Rosabelle and Essican, um, we do have uh, a proportion of our workforce that was commuting from local villages on their on shift, on cycle, on a daily basis. So as we were able to sort of clear up some space in camp, uh, we brought uh, those people inside the gates for the duration. You know, the challenges moving forward with it as the length of the, of the situation was extended was just getting into rotations and how do you manage rotations and how do you continue to manage the COVID situation. Uh, we did have some cases at sites. Westwood, we've had no cases at uh, uh, Essican. I think we had a uh, over time, a total of about 13 cases, and they've since long been resolved. At Rosabelle, we didn't have uh, a lot of cases. Uh, we didn't have any cases for a period of time. More recently, in the last sort of two or three weeks, uh, Suriname is starting to, to see uh, a little bit of a, a resurgence in, in COVID for a number of reasons. I think 
their proximity to Brazil is probably one of the biggest reasons for that. Yeah. Um, and on the back of that, we have seen a couple of cases at, at Rosabelle that we're actively managing right now. Okay, interesting. I could see the challenges of, yeah, South America being, a, and there is, I mean, we could go on and on in the second wave. I mean, it seems like we, we may be on the cusp of the second wave, but I guess we'll find out with that. Let, let's return to the security situation. So I guess a couple of questions, but I guess it's a long story short. What do you make of it? I mean, uh, what do you tell investors? I mean, are you comfortable there? We're comfortable in the countries where we operate. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Mali first. Uh, because you did bring it up and I did talk about Sadiola early on. Uh, we are actually in the process of selling the Sadiola asset. We're, we're in a joint venture with Angle Gold Ashanti on that asset. And we announced in December that that operation was in the process of being sold. So, I mean, Anglo Gold is the operator there and they, they've been sort of managing the security situation at Sadiola itself. At Essican, um, obviously, we're, we're uh, a little more on the sort of the leading edge of, of, of the issue there. Where we are, uh, for better or worse, in Burkina Faso uh, is semi-desert area. So there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of forested jungle sort of areas. Um, so it's a little easier for us to maintain our perimeter. We've been pretty forthright about spending the money, the security that we felt was, was required. And, um, you know, it's a... It's a pretty significant cost for us, and and sure. uh, you know, I, uh, in the past couple of years, we've certainly been sort of around fifteen million dollars a year on security, with a mix of both operating costs and and uh, investment in security infrastructure. Uh, it's gone. Uh, you know, I, I, we feel we're reasonably well protected, but we're we're ever vigilant, uh, and we never take it for granted. Uh, we spend a lot of effort on on security. Um, and particularly on the transport, not only protecting the site, but also the transport of individuals to and from the right. site. Uh, right. Because that, that does sort of create a vulnerability. And, and the tragedy you alluded to earlier was was really tied to exactly that situation. So right. it's, it's, it's a, a dynamic right? situation. Yeah. Um, we are starting to feel a little bit better. Um, certainly the, the, there are some French forces in country and a coordinated effort between a number of different uh, West African countries right now to control the situation in Burkina and Niger and, and in Mali. And overall, that's, uh, that's uh, I think they've been pretty successful the last couple of months in, in, in starting to turn the tide there, but we're not letting down our, our guard and, and um, we certainly watch what they do and, you know, coordinate with them what's going on at our site. So um, on a regular basis. Yeah. In terms of coordinating and just briefly, uh, do you work with the governments pretty closely or is it sort of, they're a little bit, uh, okay, you get your security and it's up to you. No, it, it, there's a lot of coordination with the governments in all the countries we operate. And it, okay. you know, as I said, our, we were founded in West Africa and I sort of been an ethic of the company ever since it was founded, that there's a strong government relations. Yeah, you're um, involved sort of, in, in yes, that community. Yes, we are involved. You know, we, yeah. we take being a, a citizen of the country very seriously and, you know, a, and a guest in the country uh, very seriously, certainly. Uh, and we want to work with our governments, not only the national governments, but also sort of the, the regional and local governments as well. There you have it, my interview with Gord Stothart, part one, CEO and president of I Am Gold. 
And stay tuned for part two. It gets very interesting. Many more topics are covered. And this gold and silver bull market is getting pretty interesting. The stocks are taking off. The metals are taking off. Stay tuned. If you want to help out the podcast, email it to a friend or leave us a review on the Apple Podcast directory. I hope you all are having a great summer. Until next week, take care.